Hello, I'm Joan Kenley, welcoming you to The Joan Kenley Show, bringing you conversation radio where talking really matters. Today we're so happy to have you with us for our program, Choosing Happiness. Oh, yes, and we will cover not only why and how you can live happily, but also how forgiveness, gratitude, and love are so important to include in your quest. Dr. Martin Seligman, author of the book Authentic Happiness, has certainly influenced my thinking about this subject. He's the founder of Positive Psychology, which focuses on the study of positive emotions. His research has demonstrated that it's possible to be happier, to feel more satisfied, to be more engaged with life, find more meaning, have higher hopes, wow, and probably even laugh and smile more regardless of one's circumstances. And that's what we want to keep in mind. And in keeping with that, Leo Biscaglia wrote about happiness, and he said what we call the secret of happiness is no more a secret than our willingness to choose life, our intention, our attention to choosing a happier life. And we're going to be talking about the power of choice in practical, happier ways to transform your living. And here in the studio for this conversation is co-host Dr. Brenda Wade and our guest, Dr. John Demartini. As many of you know, Brenda is a San Francisco-based psychologist, author, and producer who also hosts Black Renaissance once a month on the CW Network. Her most recent book is Power Choices, Seven Signposts on Your Journey to Wholeness, Love, Joy, and Peace. So happy to have you co-hosting again with us today, Brenda. It's always a pleasure, Joan, and thrilled to be here, especially since we have an exciting international guest. Yes, indeed. Dr. John Martini, and I want to let our audience know that Dr. Martini is an international speaker, philosopher, and the author of over 40 books. He's the founder of the Martini Human Research and Education Institute, which includes the study of wisdom. I'm very interested in anything having to do with wisdom. He does research on wisdom and also the concourse of wisdom educational divisions. He's also the creator of the Breakthrough Experience Seminar, the originator of the Martini Method, and the Great Discovery. All very exciting and interesting. A lot of human potential, human growth, just in the titles of those things. Welcome, Dr. Martini. Thank you. Good to have you thank here. Thank you. Thank you. It's great. <laughs> and, you know, I am so excited that both of you can get into the depths of this conversation because I really think that happiness is not on everybody's minds today. People are in the dumps about recession, about what works for them, what doesn't work, where's the money coming from. It's a whole constellation. So what do each of you have as your view of the idea of choosing happiness? You want to start, John? Well, I was um, four years old, and my mother asked me to pull weeds out of the side of the house. And my job was to do that. And I was pulling these weeds out around the house. And this lovely lady named Mrs. Grubbs, who was 84 years old, saw me leaning over the fence and saw me doing that. And as I was pulling them out, by the time I got around the whole house, I was pulling them out again. <laughs> and it was just a, and I think it was called nutweed because of the major nuts. But <laughs> she reached over the fence and she said, you know, John, she says, if you don't plant flowers in the garden, you're going to forever pull weeds. Mm. And I learned at that time that our mind is like a garden. And if we don't plant in it exactly how we want our lives, then somebody else plants in it exactly the way we don't. Great way to put it. And if we don't empower, any area of our life we don't empower is an area that somebody else overpowers. 
So it's our accountability and responsibility and our innermost drive and inspiration to truly live by having something we would love to create in our lives, and we deserve it. We deserve it. Isn't that a great way to frame it? Yeah, it is. And I love the fact that you talked about what we deserve because I think a lot of happiness has to do with how we feel about ourselves and what we feel we deserve. And one of the things I find myself working frequently with people around is the pattern that they carry. It's almost in the DNA around whether you deserve to be happy. And there's what we call the negative love syndrome that people think if mom and dad weren't happy, if they didn't show me how to be happy, unconsciously, we're not making these decisions consciously. If they were conscious, we clearly make a different one. But we feel we're stuck. Mm -hmm. And so we feel stuck and we start repeating patterns. So making a conscious choice to change my thinking, my feeling, how I relate to myself, the whole key for me is that if we're conscious, we're awake, we're aware. Mm -hmm. If we're not conscious, we're asleep at the wheel. We don't even know that we're running an automatic pilot. We're just doing it. For sure, for sure. And, you know, when I was thinking about when it is that a child feels happy or not happy, in my psychology background, I have to go back to the fact that even in the womb, a little baby can be affected by a mom who's in a car accident and her fear juices go all through her body and it trickles right into that child's nervous system, which is nobody's fault, but it is part of that child's chemistry when they're born. And then, of course, we have the nature versus nurture part. Well, what is the environment? What's the culture? How do we get our bearings as little kids? I mean, when does the ego develop, they say, around three, and then the individuality? But... What do you both think about those early formative years of finding whether the child is going to be a crybaby or an anxious child or a child that's smiling and happy? Hmm. And so mm -hmm. parents need to ask questions of themselves when they decide to get pregnant, when they decide to deliver the baby, and how they even touch and hold the baby changes the whole relationship it does. to the world, doesn't it? It does. But when you ask how parents impact the children, it really, we hope, starts before they're born. Mm -hmm. The reality is it doesn't. Most parents aren't saying, who is this child? Who am I giving birth to? They're just giving birth to a baby. And I, you know, I take a radical approach to this. I really think we should have a parenting license. I do, just too. Just like a driver's license. You've got to actually know something before you get that driver's license. There's a, mm -hmm. a competence level that we have to reach. And to be a parent or to be a partner or be in a relationship, you just kind of muddle along with what you learned. But the most important thing is for a parent to actually ask the question, who is this child and who has this child come to be in the world? What is the gift that they bring? There are a lot of cultures. Uh, I was thinking of Maladoma Somme and the Dagora people in Africa, and they do a ceremony when a woman becomes pregnant. They call the elders and they call the medicine people together, and they do drumming and chanting, and they call in the spirit of the child and they say, what is your name? Why are you coming? What have you come to do? What is your gift? So before the child is even born, the parents are getting ready oh, this child is going to be a traveler who's going to bring a great gift to the rest of the world. And so they start facilitating. And it is a celebration of happiness for yeah. this child's life. Yeah. I'm a firm believer, though. I, um, I have the opportunity to work with young children. 
and um, thousands of them. And I, I teach the children that it's not what happens to you. It's how you decide to, what you decide to do with it. And what age do you suggest they sort of make decisions? I think that the people around them can begin to do that at whatever age. I, I, don't, I mean, even though you may not be asking them cognitively um, questions until maybe three or four. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that the people around them, if they start doing it, they have an influence on them. Because as Albert Einstein said, it's our exemplification that's a great teacher. Mm -hmm. So I always say that, you know, whatever happens to you, so how did it serve you? I think that's the greatest question. Mm, At the end of every day, it's wise to ask, so whatever's happened to me, whether supportive or challenging, seemingly kind or cruel, how did it serve me and how can I do what I really love to do at that experience? And as a result of it, instead of training yourself as outer-directed, that's determining how I feel and experience, I can ch- decide to see whatever's happened to me in a way that I win. Well, exactly. And in fact, when I had my son come into my life uh, when he was eight years old, I asked him, because he was very, very uh, tight with his money, how it felt when he used his allowance to buy a present for his father. And it really took a lot for him to get that $20 out of his wallet. And he said, it feels like champagne bubbles through my body. (laughs) What a great description. But I also love this question of, how did whatever happened today serve me? Because every single experience is an opportunity to serve. Yeah. Every experience is a lesson. Every what we think is a loss is a gain. If we're asking the right questions around it. I was born on Thanksgiving Day. Wonderful. And um, what I think, as something my mother said, I wrote a book called Count Your Blessings earlier, mm-hmm. and I dedicated it to my mom. And my mom told me when I was four years old, before you go to bed tonight. Make sure you count your blessings and think about what you're grateful for. Because that whenever you're grateful for what you have, you get more to be grateful for. That's right. And so I have, all these years, gone through and scanned my life and looked at whatever's happened to me and asked, how did it help me fulfill what I'm doing, what I'm dedicated to? And what I do is I shed the burden, the shroud, the cloud, the, the illusions of life by going back and scanning and looking carefully because the things we think are terrible, a day, a week, a month, a year, or five years later, turns out to be terrific. Exactly. So why wait for the wisdom of the ages with the aging process when you can ask wise questions and have wisdom today? Well, I absolutely. love that. That's really sort of, uh, Oprah Winfrey said that to um, Barbara Walters when she interviewed her. She said, oh, Oprah, these terrible things have happened to you. You, you were raped and, and you were abandoned. And Oprah started crying. And she said, but you know what, Barbara? I wouldn't trade one thing that's happened to me because all of that made me who I am today. Without question. And we all have to look at that whole picture, but it's how we view the picture and take the picture into the moment makes the difference. And, for instance, there's this story about a group of nuns who were studied, and they were asked to write an autobiography about their life going forward into the future. And the ones who wrote positive, happy, and loving descriptions of their life to come, lived longer, were healthier, and actually had a happier life. The nuns who had negativity and sorrow and shame and unhappiness, they were the ones that had problems in life, had problems serving, had problems dying young, and being healthy. So I guess we could take a little lesson from that. Yeah, indeed. I've I've spent the last... 36 years defining what I know in my heart that I would love to create in my life, mm-hmm. what I'd love to be, what I'd love to do, what I'd love to have, and defining and writing. And I always say, start with what you know and let what you know grow. Mm-hmm. And if you write from your heart, if you go to bed at night and you think about what you're grateful for, 
and you don't stop listing the things you're grateful for until tears come out of your eyes. So much gratitude that tears come. They're the window washers of the mind. The gratitude then becomes the key that opens up the gateway of the heart. Inside the heart is a knowing, a calling, a yearning to express the greatness, the magnificence of yourself. If you then define by writing, a short pencil is great in a long memory and defining that and clarifying that and writing that out for today, tomorrow. And as Paul Bragg taught me, a great teacher, set goals for yourself, your family, your community, your city, your state, your nation, your world and beyond for at least 120 years. Mm. Because how are you going to leave an immortal legacy if you don't set goals that live beyond your life? Exactly. As the Indians did seven generations ahead when they planted, when they made celebrations, when they had births right. and deaths. You know, Joan, when you were talking about the study about the nuns, you reminded me of a study done at Harvard about money, mm. showing that Harvard grads who were asked when they were leaving Harvard Business School, what is your plan now that you've graduated with the best MBA, the gold-plated MBA, those who actually had a plan, 20 years later, when they reviewed all these people again, made up 85% of the wealth wow. of the entire class, those who had a plan. So the setting intention is critical because, and, and I love what you were saying, John, about setting an intention that goes beyond your lifetime. For sure. We've been asking people to do this with President Obama. Imagine yes. the country the way you want it to be eight years after he's been in office and then look at that trajectory and see it continuing. Such a great trajectory to look at and to put in our collective thinking, too. And in fact, when we think about how the different stages of our lives go from childhood to our teens, when we could be rebellious and finding more about who we are, to who we are as young adults and what makes us happy then or not, and then the middle years when reflection becomes a big part of what we're trying to try on for ourselves, and then the later years, which couldn't be the wisdom years, where the gratitude just flows all over you and ripples out to everybody you know and everybody you influence. And so we, we treasure that. But, you know, I, I like to think of how we are exchanging gratitude and happiness and all the other good qualities from youth to age, from young to old. We're not just older people helping the younger people find their way. Out of the mouths of babes can come some important things. And I have to share this story about this young girl, Nikki, who is Martin Seligman's daughter. And when she was five years old, this is priceless. One day she said when they were both out in the garden, maybe not your garden, John, but their, their own backyard. And, um, maybe they had a few flowers and pieces of fruit. And she just stopped in the middle of everything and she said, Daddy, I want to talk to you. And he said, of course, and she asked, Daddy, do you remember before my fifth birthday? And she says, from when I was three until when I was five, I was a whiner. I whined every day. And on my fifth birthday, I decided I wasn't going to whine anymore. And that was the hardest thing I've ever done. And if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. <laughs> So that was Seligman's epiphany in terms of his own life. He admitted that Nicky had hit the nail right on the head. He was a grouch, had spent 50 years enduring mostly wet weather in his soul. He attributed any good fortune he had not to his grumpiness, but in spite of it. And in that moment, he resolved to change, and his work with positive psychology began. So, I mean, doesn't that just say a lot? Yes, it does. <laughs> because children are so open. Their hearts, unless they've been really traumatized, and even then, 
they have a lot of open-heartedness. Oh, but yeah. that open heart is the door to the intuition. It's the doorway to our inner knowing. It's a tremendous power source, and that little girl was operating in her power. She was, she was. Well, we have to bring the segment to a close, and we have so much more to say, but we would like to also point out that Seligman's kind of epiphany doesn't always work with such dramatic results so quickly. But as Helen Keller wrote, when one door of happiness closes, another opens, but often we look so long at the closed door that we don't see the one that has been opened for us. So holding on to old reactions and behavior and resentments can make us very, very unhappy. So we're going to explore how choosing forgiveness can make a very big difference in our happiness as we go to break. So stay tuned, and we'll tell you more. You found it, and it's different. The Joan Kenley Show. What's not to love about The Joan Kenley Show, where talking truly matters. I'm Joan Kenley, and you're listening to The Joan Kenley Show. My co-host, Dr. Brenda Wade, and I are talking with Dr. John Demartini about choosing happiness, and that includes choosing forgiveness, and how the role of shame, guilt, anger, all of these are included in how we learn about forgiveness and empathy, values, perspective, all of this is about freeing ourselves up and putting better use to the energy that we have for positivity and truly holding a grudge or harboring resentments and nursing unhealed wounds is not a good scenario, is it? <laughs> That's putting it mildly, Joan. You know, there's a lot of research that shows that forgiveness is one of the powers of the heart, the heart being a sensory organ, being an organ that has not only emotional memory and emotional sensation, but there's a lot of evidence now that's an energy vortex. We don't want to block the energy. And not forgiving, holding on to resentment, blocks the energy. There's that old saying, resentment is like drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. It's really, really a poisonous <laughs> thing to do. So um, I always go back to the Course in Miracles. It says forgiveness is the key to happiness. And when we forgive, I work a lot with people who've been through trauma and been through uh, various kinds of violence, and they say, well, how can I forgive the person who molested me or the person who, who beat me or the person who, who left me to die in you know, a camp? And I say, we are not forgiving the behavior, but we are forgiving the soul because when we give, forgive, we're giving away the negative energy. And I do a little demonstration where I have a person pick up a big heavy bag and say, now go through your life carrying that. <laughs> Golly. And notice what it does to your life. So, John, I know that you've done a lot of work with forgiveness also. How does that fit into your process and the techniques you've developed? Well, I, I always say that true forgiveness is thank you for giving me this experience. Mm. Mm. I like that. And, and uh, anything that happens to me, I go through an Aristotelian perspective where the seer, the seeing, and the seen are always the same. Mm. So what I do is I ask myself this simple questions, and this is in my Demartini method approach. Um, first of all, whatever I see them do, I ask, where do I do that? Because what I find is when I judge them and I resent them, um, when I look carefully, I find out that what I see them do, somewhere in some form, in my own way, I've done the same thing. So I first look back, reflect, and own what I see in them, and it softens my reaction. 
Then I asked, since it's not what happens to me, it's what I do with it and how I perceive it. I asked, how could this be used? Because otherwise I'm assuming there's some big mistake in the universe and that there's not a higher order. And I, I believe personally that there really is a higher order and it's our job to keep looking to uncover it. Mm -hmm. So I go and I ask, so how does this serve me? Even this situation as you describe these traumatic and torturous and trauma events, they, they even have a hidden other side. There's never, as you said wisely, when the door shuts, the window opens, or the, when one window shuts, another one opens. Mm -hmm. I really believe there's another side to it. So I just asked, what might be the blessings of this, and how can I use this to my greatest advantage? And I soften the emotional judgment, which is not about them. It's about my perception of what they did. I have to own my own perception. Otherwise, I've separated cause from my own effect, instead of owning my own cause and my own effect with my own perceptions. Mm -hmm. So I go and ask, how does it serve me? Then I ask, where I've done it to the people, how has it served them? Because I may be carrying around guilt, and this person may be coming into my life to wake me up to that. And then I ask the simple question, where does this person do the opposite? Because it's easy to label somebody, but the truth is they're just a human being with a set of values, and maybe I've done something to induce their action. It's always a collective interchange a of matrix. energy. Absolutely. And once, once I go and I find that, I'm softening it. Then I ask, if they hadn't have done that, what might be the drawback in my life? Because I'm assuming that there, sometimes I'm comparing what happened to a fantasy of how it should have been, according to the way I think it is, which is a projection of my idealisms onto the world, instead of realizing in their reality what they're going through. And then I ask, at the very moment they're doing that, who is doing the opposite to me? And I found there's a, an absolute um, magnificent pair of opposites in my life. And when I go through this and I answer those questions really thoroughly, even though I may not want to at times, when I do, I'm softened from my judgment and my resentment. And I realize I can say thank you for giving me this experience. It's made me a stronger person. If you take a child and over-support it and give it what it wants, when it wants, wherever it wants, anytime it wants, it will tend to stay juvenile. But if you give it challenges and accountabilities and responsibilities, it tends to become precocious and tend to develop. A balance of the two is what makes strength. Mm -hmm. And I always say that if I'm addicted to the support, I may be attracting the challenge to make me grow. So I always look for the other side, and then I say, thank you for giving me this experience. Mm -hmm. The one thing I would add is I also, because trauma can leave such a deep emotional marker, in addition to examining and asking the right questions, how can I grow from this, I also ask people to do some emotional release work. Sometimes I find people really have deep, deep, deep emotional pain around an experience, and until it's actually acknowledged, how did I feel when that happened? I felt this. And what did I do with those feelings? Oh, I stuffed them in here, then I took them out on somebody else, or I stopped myself over here. We do the emotional release. Then I find people are even more successful with doing the shifting of perspective because they've gotten the emotional piece out so that physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, we're congruent, we're coming into alignment. Sometimes people do what I call a spiritual bypass, and they'll say, I've forgiven and they haven't done the examining the questions. They, the haven't they haven't processed the emotion and removed that. It's like a, uh, it's, I call it Drano in the drain. Mm -hmm. You know, you put the, the light in, the questions in, the processing in, and the gunk comes out. Then you've got clear water to work with. 
Well, it seems that self-forgiveness is much harder sometimes than forgiving somebody else. And oh, you yes. think that forgiving somebody else, well, now the waters are smooth. But hidden in the unconscious is, oh, my, I'm, I'm the guilty party here, or I'm the person who is responsible for my pain. And uh, it's a sticky wound. It is harder, I find, for people to forgive themselves than at the end of the day to let go of what they perceive as someone else hurting them. And I, for that reason, ask people to do a three-way forgiveness. And focusing in the heart, knowing that this is one of the 12 powers of the heart, to tap that forgiveness takes courage, one of the other powers of the heart. It takes awareness. Mm -hmm. So we start moving through those 12 powers, knowledge, understanding, and when we get to forgiveness, it's easier if we have accepted it, we have awareness, we have understanding, knowledge, courage, blah, 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 around. And once we've done it, it's, I ask you to forgive me from the bottom of my heart. I forgive you from the bottom of my heart. And I forgive myself from the bottom of my heart. All sides of whatever this is, there's a three-way process. It's wrapped, I think I'm saying what John said in a slightly different way, it's wrapped very much each person has a piece, mm-hmm. and we have to look at all three sides of it. It was Epictetus, the Greek philosopher, many centuries ago, who said, the neophyte blames others, the aspirant blames themselves, and the wise one blames no one. <laughs> there you go. They look, they look within <laughs> and discover the hidden order in their daily chaos mm-hmm. and open the heart to the truth of love. Because truthfully, there's nothing but love. Mm-hmm. Well, for sure. And we're going to get into a lot of love stuff later. But the idea that we can actually use the word choose in front of forgiveness inspires me. Because when we were creating this show and Monique and I were talking about it, I love the idea that we were talking about choice and that people can consciously say to themselves, I may be really feeling low or blue or hard as a rock in my heart. I can actually step out and choose a different path. But I believe people need conversations like this. They need the books that we're writing. They need people around them who are going to remind them of what maybe they already know and have forgotten in their moment of sorrow or shame or guilt. And I think that... We need inspiring people around us, which is why women's circles have become so popular in the last years. And the Million Circle that I'm part of wants circles to be all around the world because women need to be in conversation about things that they haven't touched sometimes for years. Mm-hmm. And men are having circles too now, aren't they? <laughs> well, I think, I think um, regardless of gender, the human soul Absolutely. desires to express its fullness. Yeah and to share its gratitude and love. I've asked people around the world, I've been in front of two and a half billion people now, and I've asked people, what is it you would love to uh, do if you had only 24 hours to live? Mm -hmm. And they would say, I would love to go to the people who've contributed to my life and say, thank you, I love you. Mm -hmm. When I ask people, how many of you want to be loved and appreciated for who you are, everyone puts their hand up. So a universal theme, a universal Mm -hmm. thread, a universal yearning inside everyone is to say, thank you, I love you. Mm -hmm. So I always say that anything less than that is less than our full potential. And that's what we're here for. Exactly. Oh, my God. (laughs) We are here only to increase our capacity to give and to receive love. That is, for me, that is the meaning of life. That is the purpose for our existence. And I know that sometimes people really are defended against the words, I'm sorry. 
or forgive me please, because it seems like people feel that they're going to be less than if they take the lead in saying, I'm the one who transgressed the relationship or did something. I know that my son growing up did not want to do anything wrong in life. (laughs) And so he defended himself completely about the I'm sorry part of the picture. And he's learned it beautifully over his young life. But it was something that he just wanted to be such a good boy. He wanted to be loved in every way, and he was. But he did say to me as we started our life together that he was so glad that I was so responsible to him for the truth. And truth does win out when all else doesn't. You know, I tell people as I uh, look them straight in the eyes, I sometimes go into hospitals and I work with people that are close to passing. Mm. And I say to them, to say to themselves, that no matter what I've done or not done, I'm worthy of love. Yes. No matter what I've done or not done. And when I have them just repeat that, repeat that, repeat that, repeat that, tears start coming out. Mm-hmm. Sure. And all of a sudden they're examining the perceptions that they had about themselves that they thought were mistakes. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden they realize maybe it did serve after all. And so forgiveness comes into the room. Self-forgiveness comes well, in. I always say that anything that you've done in your life that you think is a mistake, you think you feel shamed over, you feel guilty about, you think somehow is not right, if you go and look at how it served you and others, because you may never have examined it that way, may, may be why you're having that emotion. Mm-hmm. If you go and look at how it serves, you'll discover there was a hidden order in after all. Oh, yes. And then you'll discover, oh, my God, I've been carrying around this, this unnecessary emotional baggage because I just never asked the right question. Exactly. And there's there's one other piece I just want to add about forgiveness. I'm just so excited about the conversation. I'm sitting here going, oh, yes, yes, that. absolutely. <laughs> that, is, that is right on the money. But the other thing that's important for me around forgiveness, and you made me think of it, John, when you were talking about people getting ready to pass, is that we can't really complete in a way that's whole unless we can stop whether it's with ourselves before we're passing on or if we're there to serve someone else and they're passing and just be able to say to them, thank you. I remember doing this with my father. Thank you for everything that you gave me. You gave me, and I just want to thank you. Mm -hmm. And I love you. And my dad was really surprised. He was surprised. He was very surprised, but it was a moment I'll never forget. Mm -hmm. And it took some work because... In those days, I'd been holding on to some serious resentments because my dad should have, would have, could have, something, and I had it all wired. But in that moment, it was like being washed clean. You are so right. You know, whatever happens to us, we don't want to get caught in being victims of our history. We want to be masters of our destiny. That's right. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to be concentrating on the weeds. We want to be aware of the flowers. The fragrance of the flowers far exceed the mustiness of the weeds. The gratitude and love is the flowers of life. And we're talking about the garden of life here as we infuse it with happiness. And I read once that happiness cannot be traveled to, owned, earned, worn, or consumed. Happiness is the spiritual experience of living every minute with love, grace, and gratitude. And coming up next, we'll delve into how choosing gratefulness is a major choice for attaining happiness. The Joan Kenley Show, talk radio your way. Dr. Joan Kenley, taking talk radio to the next level. 
Welcome back to The Joan Kenley Show. I'm Joan Kenley, and we're having a stimulating conversation about choosing happiness. My co-host, Dr. Brenda Wade, and I are speaking with Dr. John Demartini. His most recent books are The Riches Within and The Gratitude Effect, and that's what we're going to be talking about now is gratitude. He's the originator of The Breakthrough Experience, The Demartini Method, and The Great Discovery, and he leads seminars all over the world, and as a presenter, he has shared the stage with many notables, including Deepak Chopra, Wayne Dyer, and Dr. Patch Adams, and I think everyone will agree we need to include gratitude in all of our happiness choices and to remember that if we're not grateful, then no matter how much we have, we won't be happy because we'll always want to have something else or something more, and it's not just about feeling gratitude. It's also about sharing it and ultimately about receiving it. Whether we realize it or not, our very nature is expanded and even healed by being appreciated. And in fact, one of the top complaints of employees around the nation is that they don't feel appreciated or seen for how hard they work. And now they're even being laid off, so it's not a happy time. But we can choose happiness, right? So we even know that wives say the same thing sometimes about not being appreciated. Well, just imagine all the wives and all the employees male or female, around the nation being in gratefulness. Now, that's a beautiful picture, don't you think? It is. I love it, Joan. <laughs> you paint a gorgeous picture. Gratitude is one of those tremendous powers. When I'm dealing uh, with someone who's feeling depressed, one of the fastest ways to shift that is to actually have people sit down and start writing out the things they feel grateful for. And you talked about people losing their jobs. Mm-hmm. and. This is something that's happening around us quite a bit right now. And one of the first things I do is say, okay, sit down and make a list of all the things you still have that are important because those things add up to what I call the golden bottom line. We think of the bottom line, how much money I have, my assets, but the golden bottom line is how much love do I have? Mm -hmm. How much love have I given? How much service have I given? How much am I contributing? Because on the day we leave the planet and drop the body here, we're not going to go, well, let me check my bank account and let me see how the assets are doing. We're going to look around and see who's with me on this journey that I have cared for, who has cared for me, who's sitting here with me to say goodbye and farewell. That's what's going to matter most to us. So that golden bottom line is made up of the things that matter on the inside, that heart-centered way of looking at our lives and looking at ourselves. And gratitude is the key. I think so, too. And I know that John agrees. He's smiling there across the microphone. (laughs) Well, I always say that if you're in a relationship, if you're not appreciating that relationship, they tend to go somewhere else. Uh If you're not appreciating your customers, they tend to go somewhere else. If you're not appreciating even wealth that you do have, it goes somewhere else. It always goes where it's appreciated most. And, um, you know, it's just like in real estate. Uh, We don't buy properties that depreciate. We buy things that appreciate. Hopefully so. Because that is a reminder around us in everything That's cool. I like that. Things that appreciate. To give us feedback, to let us know we're here to be appreciative. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that uh, just like in a computer, before we close it down, it's trying to tell us to save. Mm-hmm. So, too, our <laughs> lives are trying to tell us to be appreciative. Because no matter what we do, when we appreciate, we get more of what we get. Oh, it's so true. That's wonderful. And I believe there's seven areas of life, and I believe it enhances. Gratitude enhances all seven areas. It awakens our spiritual mission. Mm-hmm. It enhances our vitality physically. 
It helps no our question. healing. Mm-hmm. I wrote a book called Count Your Blessings, The Healing Power of Gratitude and Love. And I believe that anything that you're not grateful for and that you don't love burdens you instead of fuels you. Mm-hmm. And it causes symptoms. And the feedback of the body in the form of symptoms are trying to get us back to love and gratitude. Yes. And then our social life, if we appreciate the people around us, we tend to have more fulfillment, more leadership. And in our uh, family life, if we appreciate, we have a family life. And if our business, if we appreciate people and our money that we appreciate, all areas of our life, when we appreciate what we got, we get more to be appreciated. Mm, It's like a multiplier. I mean, it's not just one and one make two. It makes millions of things happen. It's like particles uh, spreading out all over the universe. It's true. And when I think about this nation of gratitude that I was talking about, I'm really imagining that we can have collective gratitude in this world and in our nation. I think we have huge gratitude, may I say, for our new president. Yes. And we are really in gratitude for the fact that from the grassroots up, we joined an energy that could actually ripple through all ages, to say, yes, we can. It's true. And, you know, I was thinking about, uh, I had conversations during the election process with a number of friends who are staunch Republicans, who've always voted Republican, come from Republican families, live in Republican areas, and voted Democratic for the first time ever. And I asked them why. You know, what brought about a shift like that? Mm -hmm. They said, I'm not really sure, but I just feel really differently about this candidate, and I wish I could say it was just the fact that I thought the other team didn't have what I need or want, but there's a feeling here. And it made me think about Father Bede Griffith. I met him just before he passed away. He was C.S. Lewis's best friend at Oxford, and he wrote a lot of books, and when they were young men, they had this romantic dream that they would run away from Oxford and become monks. Mm -hmm. So they went to France and joined a monastery. I think C.S. Lewis lasted maybe six months, you might know the story, or maybe a year at the most. But B. Griffith stayed and spent the rest of his life devoted to teaching, except he was sent to India. And when he got to India, he said, I have nothing to offer these people. Their spirituality is superior because they are grateful for everything that they have. And I said, well, don't you think our materialism holds us back in the West? He said, oh, no, the materialism helps because you have so much, but yet you still feel empty because you're not grateful. Mm-hmm. I was, um, as I said, born on Thanksgiving Day, so I think I have been ordained or to do something on that uh, area. And, and every book I've ever written um, emphasizes gratitude. But when I was 17 years old and I met a 90 something year old man who inspired me. One day, one, literally one hour, one night, this man inspired me to do what I do today. And uh, he's the one that inspired me to start keeping a list on a daily basis of what I'm grateful for. Mm-hmm. Now I have a 678 page, 10 point, one inch margin, highly printed, detailed document of everything I've been grateful for since. It's the largest collection I've seen. Uh, maybe somebody out there I haven't run into yet. But I do it every night. And I don't go to bed at night until I've compiled that list, whatever I can be grateful for. And I don't just pick the things that support my little values to make me feel that eased. I also take the things that challenge me because in my life, looking back, the challenges are what catalyze my greatest growth. So I go and I find the things that catalyze that. 
and I make a list of what I'm grateful for. And I started off by saying I had the opportunity to meet this person, I had the opportunity to experience this, I had the opportunity to do this, and I document every day. And I don't go to bed at night until I have a tear of gratitude. Mm. And I always say a tear of gratitude is the window washer of the soul. And gratitude, since it opens up the heart, and the soul reveals itself, as I said on The Secret, when the voice and the vision on the inside becomes more profound and louder than all opinions on the outside, you've begun to master your life. And it's gratitude that opens up that gateway. Well, gratitude is almost like an elixir that oils the machine <laughs> or oils our heart to relax more. I mean, I think that when you were talking about heart a little while ago, Brenda, I was thinking about how hard the heart gets when it's in resentment or restriction or not grateful. It shrinks. It actually becomes a tighter muscle of sorts, and there's no blood flow in the same way that we can actually open the heart and have more life and love flowing through. And love is an expansive emotion, just as gratitude is. And when people learn to be sensitive to heart feelings, they can actually feel that the heart has honey in the depths of the heart, mm. or it's like cotton candy, or it's like love flowing through the skin out into the world. So there's so many ways to look at reshaping hearts. And there's a lot heart. of science to back you oh, up. Yes. Oh, lots yes. Lots and lots of science. The, the first time I encountered any research on the heart was when I was in grad school at University of Washington, and Dr. Robert Pagano was taking Curlian photographs of people who had massive cardiac sure. incidents, and he was able to show in the photograph the gray area where the energy of the heart was lacking. And then his study was about teaching these heart patients to meditate. And as they began to meditate, you could see the heart area get brighter and brighter and would turn pink and the energy around the body would get really big. Sure. It was because I didn't know anything in those days. I was blown away. It was my first introduction to what you just described in what we then called soft science. Sure. Now Herbert Benson's research at Harvard oh, School of his, Mind, Body, his and Medicine. His work is incredible. You know, Glasser and Glasser, University of Cincinnati. There's just on and on and on. There's a long list that show that. The heart is the key to our happiness, our forgiveness, our gratitude, our connection with ourselves and others, with spirit. It just, it's almost unlimited, the potential of this thing we used to think was a muscle. Well, for sure. And gratitude is felt by the plants, by the earth, by the cats, the dogs, and the parrots. I mean, it was so interesting to hear about this brilliant parrot that was 30 years old that this woman raised and recently wrote about. And this parrot could choose colors and solve problems and do all kinds of things. But at the moment before his death, this parrot said to his beloved keeper, be a good girl, I love you. Mm. Such gratitude from this animal that all scientists said would have no possibility of having this kind of appreciation, gratitude, or thought. Right. So, you know, we have to be aware. <laughs> it's true. Animals are, and as you said, even plants, I shouldn't say sure. even because they're, they're sentient also, they are. are very responsive. We've all seen those photographs of what happens to a plant if it's yelled at. Versus right. if you praise it and love it and it grows much faster and it's fluffy and juicy and beautiful. All of that. I, you know, I always say that uh, I'm a retired chiropractor. I used to line spines and minds of the divine to make people feel fine. <laughs> so funny. Now I help them set their goals so they can drive their roles, as I say. But um, Can we quote you? One, one thing that I've observed and I believe is that the human symptomatology is actually feedback to the consciousness 
to inspire us to look at the events in our life that we may have seen in an imbalanced way, to go back and look at it differently until we can say, thank you, I love you. Mm -hmm. Once we do, the symptomatology fades and melts away. And so it's actually, instead of it being a disease you've got to get rid of, I always say, look for your disease and what it's trying to get you to learn and find out how it's trying to help you love again. Help you love again and appreciate and be in gratitude for. And I so appreciate that gratitude unlocks the fullness of life, the bigness of life, and turns what we have into enough and more. And then we can look at how people turn denial into acceptance and can be grateful for that. They can turn chaos into order, confusion into clarity. And if gratitude can change problems into gifts, failures into success, the unexpected into perfect timing, and mistakes into important events, well, then gratitude is going to be all around. Just as we were saying earlier, it's going to just smear itself all over our wonderful lives. And, you know, I love the name of your seminar, John, which is called Add Years to Your Life and Life to Your Years, because you're giving so many elixirs about how to prolong life in the fullest way possible. And so we're going to talk more about how you put love in your seminars and your books and how Brenda does the same. And we'll be right back about choosing love. Ready for more? Dr. Joan Kenley continues in a moment. Log on to joankenley.com, that's K-E-N-L-E-Y, to learn more and listen to archived shows. Invite your friends and family to listen to The Joan Kenley Show. I'm Joan Kenley, and you're back with The Joan Kenley Show. My co-host, Dr. Brenda Wade, and I are deeply engaged with Dr. John Demartini about choosing happiness. I like the idea that happiness cannot be traveled to, owned, earned, worn, or consumed. Happiness is the spiritual experience of living every minute with love, grace, and gratitude. So we're going to turn now to the idea of choosing love as part of the whole happiness picture. It's worth thinking of love as the choice you make from moment to moment. And you may recall that Gandhi urged us all to keep in mind that where there is love, there is life. Oh. <laughs> and I hope we're all as alive as we can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think everything that we experience in life is about love. It's either a place to bring more love give more love, receive more love, develop more love. It's it's just all about love. We've been talking about how the body responds to love. And I remember talking with uh, Stephen and Andre Levine uh, a few years back about them healing her so-called terminal illness using love and just pouring love in. Mm-hmm. And then they started doing little experiments. Uh, they had a, an old wood stove in this place they were living in. They were in kind of hibernation at that phase, and they kept burning themselves on the stove because it was such a small space. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, gee, we're covered with all these bruises and burns and burn marks. Why don't we try putting love into the burns? And so they started putting love in, and they took pictures, documenting, mm-hmm. and these things would fade away as they put more and more love into them. 
Well, I truly believe that. And when my little doggie has had operations, I'm just putting my loving hands on those sutures and, and putting love around his whole body. And I'm telling you, that little guy is so happy. Yeah. <laughs> so happy. And you're a healer, too, aren't you, yes, John? Yes, I've been blessed to uh, have some really amazing things happen in, in front of me uh, with my hands that um, bring tears to my eyes when I think about it. I had a boy who was in a coma for three and a half years. And his parents came from uh, Mexico, and they had exhausted all the hospitals there. And they came to Houston, to the medical center there, looking for somebody to help their son, who had been in a coma. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't, they couldn't find anybody that would do anything. They said, there's nothing we can do. He has brain damage, encephalitis. There's nothing we can do. He went to the Texas Chiropractic College looking for help. And they said, there's nothing we can do. But we know this guy in West Houston that graduated from here. Go see him. So they referred him to me. And they wheeled him in. They literally... Well, they carried him in. They wheeled him up to the door, and they carried him back to the room, wrapped up in a white sheet. And there were seven or eight brothers and sisters, the mother and father. And they were in this room, and they opened up the sheet. And there he was with decerebral rigidity, completely rigid. And um, the mother, basically, after going through the exams and looking at everything I could do with it, the mother said, if he dies, he dies. If he lives, we rejoice. But please help us. We have nowhere else to go. Mm. And I had the opportunity to, with my hands, uh, do a special maneuver that was uh, something that intuitively was guided to do. And in my hands, he came out of his coma after three and a half years. Mm. Amazing. And, and the entire room hit, the, hit their knees mm. and went into prayer. And wow. I, I was speechless. My, my buddy, who had the doctor, was speechless. My assistants were speechless. We couldn't speak. We just were crying because mm. we watched... Um, the power that made this body bring back life to this body. Sure. Mm. And, uh, How and old I, was he? He was, uh, let's see, he was 13 and a half when he actually had the fall, and so he was almost 17 oh when, my, he, when he was my, my. doing it. And, and I saw the love of a family because they never gave up on him. No, they no. didn't, did they? And, and they were willing to do whatever it took. And I saw the love of a family bring that boy back. And, and you know what's interesting? Right before I was about to do this particular maneuver, I, um, I remember a statement that went through my mind. Uh, you'll never raise the dead with your hands until you can allow them to die in your hands. Mm. And, and I went in my mind and I said, I have to be willing to take the risk. They've got nowhere else to go. I've got to do this procedure. And they gave you the permission. They gave me permission yes. to do it. And I did this procedure, which was actually lifting part of his skull off his spinal cord that had been jammed because he fell three stories oh. onto his head and broke open his skull. And, and, uh, and we lifted his skull off his spinal cord. And when it did, he came back. And it was really an amazing story that uh, brings tears to my eyes, I think. For right? sure. Of mm-hmm. course it does. I mean, well, these I are the moments we need to believe in, you know. Yes. I always say that love is the greatest healer, and there's nothing more powerful than that. And, and love is all there is, and all else is illusion. And when we don't look deep enough, we have the responsibility to keep looking. Because in the events in our life, once we bring balance to our perceptions, we'll discover that there was love there all the time. Exactly. Yes. And, and I always say that if you don't see love there, you just got to look deeper. Never give up on love. Never mm-hmm. give up on love. Uh, that just blew me away, John. I could feel the energy as you were talking about that boy. I could feel it just go through my whole body. Oh, so indeed. I'm kind me of too. Tingling and whew. So I just want to say anybody who wants to go on this beautiful journey of discovering more about love, the place to start is inside. Mm-hmm. It's with loving yourself. It's discovering everything about yourself that's lovable. And sometimes, I mean, in my own life, I had to start with the most basic to win back some self-esteem and self-love because 
I've been battered as a child. And to be able to say, this about me is worthy. This about me is valuable. And I made up a list. I called it my list of assets. Mm -hmm. And I had this little affirmation that said, wherever I go, whatever I do, everything about me is an asset. Because I used to say, oh, well, you know, when people would walk out, I was waiting for a job, and they'd say, oh, to the oldest white man in the room, you must be Dr. Wade. And I'd say, no, excuse me. I know wrong age, wrong sex, wrong color. And I kept saying it. And then a friend of mine went, are you crazy? What are you doing affirming negatives? So she taught me to make this asset list. And I swear this is true. I started doing my asset list night after night. And I went for my first national TV show. And the producer came back in, in my dressing room and said, I've been looking for years for a young black woman psychologist who's a wife and a mother. That was my list. Bingo. That was my list. Mm -hmm. So I want to encourage people to start on the ground. Start right where you are. Make that list of your assets. And if you're troubled by somebody else, make a list of their assets. Wherever you go, wherever they go, everything about them, everything about you is an asset. But if you're in a situation where you are being hurt physically, get out and learn to love yourself so you don't accept that kind of treatment as something that is your due. It's not your due. No, of We're course all not. lovable. Of course not. And, you know, a lot of people want to work in the world with their minds. And a lot of people say, my mind and heart don't work at the same time. I have time for my heart, time for my mind. But Madarana said that love is the only emotion that expands intelligence. <laughs> and so That's we right. do want to put the heart and the mind and the body and soul into a full picture because we're going to be smarter when we're loving than if we're closed down and not there's no question you know there's there's a study out now that shows that as your eq goes up your iq goes up and but if your iq goes up it does not pull eq up and she's talking about emotional intelligence when you're when your mind (laughs) is poised and present and purposeful it becomes powerful and your heart opens to the gratitude and love effect and when you do the physiology becomes enthused your mind becomes inspired you become present with the possibilities that you hold deeply in your heart, mm-hmm. and you manifest and create your greatest intention through attention. Yes, I totally believe in that. And as we go into the home stretch here, I would love to know from you, John, how your website can be found by our audience and how they can know more about your work and more about your books and more about what you're doing. Well, the simplest way is to go to drdmartini.com. That'll work. Just D-R-D-E-M-A-R-T-I-N-I dot com. I always say the art is in the heart of my name. And uh, so Demartini. And um, the drdemartini.com is the simplest way they can go and find out what, what's happening around the world. I've been blessed to travel the world and uh, share my heart. You know, when I was 17 years old and I met that teacher. Yes. Uh, that night he had us define what we want to dedicate the rest of our life to. And I got a vision that night. And I saw myself speaking in front of a million people. And I was a high school dropout. I had lived on the streets at the time. So that was a big jump for me. Big but jump. I saw that possibility. Because he told us that we had something amazing inside us. And um, all I know is that I had that. And I said to myself that I dedicate the rest of my life to the study of universal laws, as he was describing, particularly as it relates to mind, body, and spirit, and particularly as it relates to healing. And I dedicate my life to step foot in every country on the face of the earth and share my research findings with people and help people live inspired and magnificent lives. There's nothing more magnificent in my life than to do what I love doing. And I believe that everyone out there deserves to do what they love and love what they do. 
and don't accept anything less. Just keep working on it every day, even if you have to chip at it with a little bit of a fine-tooth comb. <laughs> just chip it away every single day, and every day you do an inspiring action, you move towards an inspiring life. Absolutely. Uh, bravo. And Brenda, I know you're doing a lot of work in the world, too, so catch us up on that and remind us of your website. Well, speaking of inspiring, I'm deeply inspired by this conversation with you, John, and always with you, Joan. I'm, my heart is just Back full at you. right now. I'm feeling all full and, and delicious. And the thing that I'm most uh, focused on right now in my work is helping people to discover, uncover, and augment the power of the heart. The heart is such a powerful, I call it an energy.